Go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 12. We're just going to be looking at one verse this afternoon. Shocker. But it's an important verse. And by way of introduction, I, I want to just um, maybe set the, the stage for our text this morning. I, I, we had the, the opportunity this past weekend of hosting a, a satellite site for uh, the men's conference, Free Indeed. Many of you were there, and uh, I had a, a, just such an encouraging and refreshing time. Um, I was privileged to be one of the main session speakers on Friday night. I was out in Oakville um, where I, I got to preach. That was the main site, and um, I, I preached a message actually on a 1 Peter 1.13, and the theme of the conference was stay awake, and, and the main emphasis of my message was on hope, how hope helps us stay awake. And I was preaching at a 1 Peter 1.13 where Peter, he calls the church to set their hope fully on the grace that is going to be revealed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how Peter reminds believers who are suffering and struggling with life about the living hope that they have and how that living hope drives them through their trials and tribulations and suffering. And after I had finished preaching in Oakville, I had a man come up to the, the stage. Actually, it was, uh, was a man, and, and one of his friends was with him. And, and this man was a, um, um, a very large man. I mean, he was built like a refrigerator. He could have broken me in half in a moment and he was just a strong, tough-looking guy. I mean, bald, had picture Dwayne Johnson, okay? That's who was in front of me. And he came up, and he was just, he wanted to tell me how much he appreciated the message and how much God had spoke to him through the message. And uh, he was standing there with his friend, and in a moment where this man, he just, he seemed like he was so beaming and so thankful, and all of a sudden, he just starts weeping. I mean, just uncontrollable weeping. And he just starts, like, tears streaming down his face, and he just says, you know, you just, I, I, I hear the message of hope, and I so need the message of hope because my life right now, it's, he just, he's, he's hyperventilating, I just so mess, and I can't see, I can't see anything. I'm so trapped in my, my, search, my situation, in my circumstance, and he just, I can't see, I can't see, I can't see, he just kept over and over, I can't, I can't see. And his friend, who was so sweet, his his friend, this, this older man who's clearly been walking with him through, through a lot, put his arm around him, and he just said, he said, my friend here, he's been, through, he's been through more than most people could possibly imagine and could possibly handle. And it was such a, a powerful reminder, right? Do not judge a book by their cover. People can look really strong on the outside, but they could be weathering some of the, the most difficult storms in life. And this, this week, I, I had three different conversations with three pastors that I know who are facing significant trials in life, some personal, some church-wide, some health-related. In our own church, I spoke to multiple families this week who are suffering, and many people don't even know, going through incredible difficulties, tragedies, heartache, this week, I, I talked to a number of individuals who are suffering all kinds of different things, emotional distress, physical distress. This past couple of weeks, I've been suffering some physical distress. 
And, and it's made me very aware that every time we walk into church, it's important to understand, listen, that we're, we're walking in these doors, but we have no idea what people are really going through. We have no idea how many people come in here and are just trying to hold themselves together. They're hanging on by a thread, but inside they feel like they are falling apart and they're desperate You know, nothing reveals our hearts more than trials. And nothing, according to the Scripture, refines our hearts more than trials. And the Bible says that we have trials. We're going to encounter trials of of, of all different kinds, various kinds, a multitude of different kinds of trials to varying degrees of intensities. Nothing tests our love for God and our love for the body of Christ more than trials. Paul has been speaking to us about what it means to be a genuine Christian, and one of the dominating marks of of a genuine follower of Jesus Christ is this love, a genuine love that is not hypocritical, it is sincere, it is authentic. And what we see in our verse this morning, listen, is the kind of love that the Bible talks about that is is to be characteristic of Christians is a love that lasts, a a love that's not like the love of this world that is fickle and fleeting. It's, It's easily won or given, but easily lost and broken. Biblical love is a love that is firm. It is secure. It is unshakable and unbreakable. It is there through the good, it is there through the bad, and it is there through the ugly. And Romans chapter 12 teaches us that there is no neutrality in this life. You are either being transformed by the Word of God, or you are being conformed to the mold of this world. And and that is true in the good times just as much as it is true, maybe more true in the bad times. As Christians, and as a church community, here's the question, here's the question, listen, how will we respond when we face trials? My observation is that tribulation seems to make people, listen, bitter or better. Tragedies can make people sweeter or sour. Troubles can make you humble or arrogant. Trials can make you soft or they can make you hard. And it's interesting how Paul moves from talking about the Christian life to not be slothful in zeal, as he said in verse 11, not be, to be fervent in spirit and to serve the Lord. And then he moves into these, these words. Look at what he says in, in verse 12. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This is very simple, but it is profoundly life-changing. These are not just commands that are given to Christians. These are actually descriptions of genuine love in the believer's heart. They are the manifestation of genuine love in the heart of a believer. They demonstrate 
the genuine love that is in the heart of a believer. And what we see as we go through trials and tribulations is that we will be changed by what we go through. The question is, how will we be changed? Will we be changed for our good? Will we be changed to look more like Jesus? Or will we be changed in a way that is unhelpful and in a way that is actually tragic and destructive? What will your trials do to you? What kind of person will they make you? And what determines this is how we respond to our trials. So here's what I want to do this afternoon. I want to give three ingredients to make us Christ-like in our trials. For some of you, this is really relevant this morning. You're here, and, and you're, real, you're, you're, you're in the midst of a trial. For some of you, you just come out of a trial. But look, for all of us, wherever you are, listen, if you're not in a trial right now, listen, the question is just, it's when you're going to be in the next trial, isn't it? When's the next thing going to hit? So for all of us, this is incredibly important to digest this afternoon. The first ingredient to make us Christ-like in our trials, here it is, a confident expectation in God. This is essential to make you Christ-like in your trial. You hear what he says here in verse 12, rejoice in hope. In other words, love, genuine love, it expects, it has an expectation that drives the joy of the Christian life. He says, rejoice in hope. You say, well, what is hope and why does it matter? We've just finished singing about a living hope. The kind of hope that Christians have is not, again, like a worldly hope. It's not a wishful thinking. It's not the potential of something happening. It is the reality of something that awaits. It is the confident expectation of the promises of God. It is the guarantee of what awaits us. It is grounded upon the character of God, upon His faithfulness, upon His power, and upon His grace. Biblical hope is certain, but you see, whatever you put your hope in, that's where you ultimately get your joy from. That's why a lot of times when we've placed our hope in something and that something is taken away, think maybe a relationship, or maybe you've put your hope in money, maybe you put your hope in, in a person, and all of a sudden that person or that thing, uh, that resource is taken away, and all of a sudden it leaves you absolutely shattered because you've placed the weight of your expectations, all of your hope upon something that was not intended to bear that kind of weight. Now listen, I'm not trying to minimize legitimate hurt and pain from something that's been taken away. That is real. But oftentimes it exposes where we've truly placed our hope and where then we are trying to find our joy. And I want you to think of it like this. You see, hope is the soil for joy. It is the ground, the tender, rich soil that our joy is supposed to spring from and flow out of. In other words, if you want joy, you actually need to have hope. And if you want, listen, eternal joy, if you want biblical joy, you have to have biblical hope. So what is your hope? If your hope is not something that is steadfast and able to withstand the trials that you will inevitably face in life, your joy will disappear the moment your hope disappears. It will evaporate. Where is your hope today? 
What is it that's holding the weight of your expectations for your life? Do you ever ponder that? Do you ever just pause and begin to ask that question and seriously give time to really considering? Maybe it's in your health. Maybe it's in your money. Maybe it's in a person, a relationship. Maybe it's in a job or a career. Maybe it's in the economy. Maybe it's in politics. Maybe it's in freedom. Maybe it's in all kinds of different things. And to be clear, those things and pursuing some of those things, they're not wrong in and of itself. It's not wrong to pursue money for the right reasons. It's not wrong to pursue freedom for the right reasons. It's not wrong to do a lot of these things. It's just wrong when they become the primary place you are putting your hope. And it's very possible to pursue these things and them not be the primary place where you are putting your hope. That's what the Bible would advocate for. Hope in the things of this world are fleeting. That's what the Bible wants you to know. If you place your hope in the things of this world, then they're inevitably going to be found to be bankrupt and empty because this world is passing away. N- nothing in this world is going to last. Do you realize that? Nothing in this world is going to last. You can't, you can't, you know, you, you never see a, um, a, a U-Haul following a hearse, right? You heard that? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he, and he forfeits his soul? Like, that's the point. You, you, you can't put your hope in this world. It's fleeting. It's not meant to bear the weight of your expectations. It can't give you the kind of joy you are looking for. But yeah, I think this. I think, I think hope in the world. Let me give you an analogy here. I think placing your hope in the things of the world, it's like trying to swim with a weighted vest on, Okay. It's like you're just treading water, and you're trying to keep your head above. And every, every gasp of air, it's like, okay, okay, well, that feels good. That feels better. But inevitably, eventually, it's going to sink you. It's going to drown you. And in contrast to that, Christian hope, let me use this same analogy. Christian hope is a buoyant hope. Okay, Christian hope floats. And it keeps you afloat amidst the storms of life. It's like a life preserver that's around you. But let me just kind of extend this analogy a little bit for you. It's like a life preserver that's keeping you afloat, right? The waves are crashing in. The storms are coming. But it's not just keeping you afloat. It's actually got a rope tied to it. And you know what's happening is you're not only staying afloat, but there's somebody, a lifeguard, an eternal lifeguard. See what I did there? on the other end of the rope, and he is pulling you through the storm safely to the shore of his grace. That's Christian hope. It pulls you through. It doesn't just keep you up. A famous church father by the name of John Christostom in the early centuries of the church, he said that these things in this text, in verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. He said all of these things, they are the fuel of the Holy Spirit in you. That's what he said. He says this, there is nothing which makes the soul so courageous and adventuresome as good hope. But I also want you to see this. Hope is actually a community project. And, and hope is deeply connected to our faith. 
You know, when this man stood before me and wept and his friend put his arm around him and encouraged him and, and, and talked to him about the importance of being together and being with the people of God, and, and he stood there and he wept and he said, I, I need this. I need to be around God's people. I need to be reminded of what's true. And, I, and this is what he said. He said, I have this tendency to do when everything just gets overwhelming, I, I just, I flee. I run from this. But every time I come back, I, I, I just, God, God continues to remind me how much I need this. And, and this is so true and it's so biblical. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, 22 through 25, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's what he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, here it is, look at this community project, okay? Listen to this, church. This is so important. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, here's what you need to know. The author of Hebrews is writing to believers who are suffering They're undergoing great trials and tribulations for following Jesus Christ. When Peter writes to the church and calls them to set their hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's writing to Christians who are suffering. When Paul writes, listen, when Paul writes these words to the church in Rome, it is only going to be a matter of years before Christians are being burned in the garden parties of Nero the emperor. Our hope, listen, our hope is not in this world. There is nothing in this world that can save us. Can I get an amen? Amen. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And listen, some of you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ. Your hope is in this world. Your hope is in the things of this world. You've put all your weight on them and you have no lasting joy. You are empty, you're bankrupt, and you know it. The Bible actually says, Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, that you are without God and therefore without hope in this world. You see what he says there? He says that your hope is connected to a relationship with God. The very reason you were created is to be in relationship with God, to find life in Him, to find joy in Him. There's a reason why at the very end of our lives, right, we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because Jesus is going to say to us, enter into the joy of your master. You see, He offers to us eternal joy that begins here and now through faith in Jesus Christ, and it leads us into eternal joy forever and ever in the presence of our Savior. Now listen, you can have that today. You can have that hope by turning to Jesus, by repenting of your sin, by, by, by repenting of your idolatry of this world. By saying, God, I, I rebelled against you. I've turned from you. I, I have shunned you. I have sinned against you and you alone, and I need to be saved from my sin, and I can't do it. I can't earn it. I can't be good enough. I can't be righteous enough. This is the message of Romans. But God, you could save me, and God wants to save you. That's the awesome thing about the Bible. God so desperately loves you. The genuine love of God is expressed in that God sent his one and only begotten son for you that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you place your faith in Jesus today, you can enjoy that life. You can have a living hope. You can have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you that is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. The sure and steady promise of a future 
a joy in him that carries you through the hardest moments. You notice how Paul is telling us here again to rejoice in hope, to delight in it. That's what he's saying. You see, what does it mean to delight? What does it mean to rejoice? You see, the Bible tells us that our chief source of joy and delight is to be in Jesus Christ. It is to be truly fulfilling and satisfying. And, and this is the struggle of the human heart. We're seeking satisfaction and joy in so many other things. I was, I was with my kids this summer at uh, Canada's Wonderland, and I um, was standing in line for uh, a, a drop zone, whatever. You know the big one that goes up and it just goes right down? Yes. We're standing in line, and uh, this, this, this little guy, little guy, maybe eight or nine years old, he, he comes walking up in line, um, and he's all by himself. And, uh, you know, what I want you to think of here is think uh, uh, the Home Alone, think the McAllisters, think the neighbor kid, right? Like, does this van get good gas mileage? Like that kid, okay? So he just starts talking to us, like, hey, have you been on this ride? Have you been on this ride? We're like, oh, hey, man, yeah. Uh, he's like, oh, is it good? Like, yeah, it's pretty good. We're, we're back again. He's like, oh, is it scary? I'm like, oh, I mean, it's, it's, he's, 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 no joke. He's, is it thrilling? I'm like, yeah. And then, he, and then he says, he's like, he's like, but was it satisfying? I'm like, <laughs> he's the kids' lingo these days, so I hear. That's how you know you're getting old, by the way, when you say things like that. I, I said, satis- I said, I said, what? I, I, I was satisfying. I'm like, well, I guess so. It's a roller coaster. I mean, it's as satisfying as a roller coaster can be. I should have said, should have said, gee, kid, I don't know, hit the road or something like that. <laughs> See, this, this is our problem. This is the problem of the human heart. We are tempted to rejoice and to delight and to be satisfied in things that are temporary. And you know, it's not wrong to find temporary joy and satisfaction in some of the things of this earth that are not sinful. Because it points us to the reality of that ache in our heart. And it points us to the one, listen, who wants us to be satisfied and who offers us satisfaction. And by the way, when you know the eternal satisfaction of God, it allows you to actually find some kind of satisfaction in the things of this world, in the right sense, in the right way, with the right perspective. And that's so important, though, to make sure we're finding our our satisfaction, our delight, our rejoicing in the right place, in the right person. I, I love what William Gurnall, the great Puritan writer, said. He says this, the nearer to heaven in hopes the farther from earth in desire. Listen to that again. The nearer to heaven in hope, the farther from earth in desires. The more you set your mind on things above, the more the things of this earth grow strangely dim. The more you turn your eyes toward Jesus, the more you're satisfied with him and so dissatisfied with what this world has to offer. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 8, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It reminds us of our Savior, doesn't it? who suffered and did so for the joy that was set before him. He endured so much for joy that was before him. 
And all of this, by the way, when I talk about rejoicing in hope, I'm not talking about rejoicing in our circumstances, as if we're supposed to be masochistic and enjoy the pain of our circumstances. No, we're rejoicing in hope. And Thomas Brooks, he wrote these words, so helpful. He says this, hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds. Some of you, listen, you're in some thick clouds right now. And God is saying to rejoice in hope. See, how do I do this? How do I do this better than I am? And I confess, I need this. I need this so desperately for my own heart. So many, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this. He says, so many of our problems come from listening to our hearts instead of preaching to our hearts. I love that because this, this is what the Bible repeatedly tells us to do. Preach to ourselves. Preach to ourselves the truth of the gospel, the only place we can find hope. Preaching the gospel to ourselves each day. Listen, here's what it does. It provides a lens through which we can view our trials, our circumstances, the difficulties we face. And that then enables us to see the true cause for rejoicing that exists in the trial itself. They set our hope on the only one who satisfies. Listen, this is the benefit of trials. Trials will strip away every other thing that you've been trying to find hope in. It will show you how empty they are, and it will force you to cling to the only thing that will truly satisfy your weary, burdened heart, Jesus Christ. And he promises you, Jesus does, a future glory that will make, listen, that will make every trial feel one day like a light, momentary affliction. It will feel like it was so light. What feels so heavy now, listen, in the blink of an eye, when you stand in the glory of Jesus Christ, whatever you're facing, however painful it is, it will feel like it was so momentary, like it was just a little while, and it was so light in comparison to the weight of glory you are now going to get to live in for for the rest of eternity. Amen. This is the joy of hope. And because trials await, and because trials are real, listen, loved ones, listen, love that last requires, secondly, a committed endurance for God. I hope you see the connection here. Rejoicing in hope actually leads us to be able to endure, to be patient in tribulation. And the reality is there's so much against our hope. There's so much attacking our hope. That's why Peter tells the church to set their hope fully on the grace because he knows that our hope is so easily divided that we're so distracted. We, we can have our hope partially set on the things of God and partially set on the things of this world. And God says, listen, if you really want to excel and endure through unbelievable tribulation, you need to set your hope fully, fully on him and what he promises it's been said that you can only learn courage when you're tempted to flee. In the same way, you can only build endurance when you face the pressures of tribulation. Paul actually has already talked about this. If you remember back in Romans chapter 5, here's what he said. He said, not only that, verse 3, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see how he connects all those things again? He's just so masterful, and he, just, he keeps repeating himself in different ways and bringing us back to the truth of the gospel, love, hope, endurance, suffering. They're all deeply interwoven. The tribulation, that's, that's such a 
a disturbing word, isn't it? It's a potent word. But how we handle it, perhaps more than anything else in our life, will shape our character. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, he said this. He said, three things make a minister, prayer, meditation, and suffering. Thanks, Martin. But you know, it's true. It's true. And in the context of Romans, like I said, in, in a matter of years, people would be enduring unbelievable tribulation and suffering. Unbelievable. Stuff that we can't even fathom. And when the tribulations come into our lives, it so often seems opposite our hope. Milton Vincent, in his fantastic little book, The Gospel Primer, he writes these words. He says, more than anything else I could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulations and thereby position myself to gain full benefit from them. For the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. Every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves His gospel purpose in me. And the gospel purpose of God in all of your tribulations, if you're a follower of Christ, I don't know all the details. I don't know what God is entirely trying to do in you. I just know this. I know that God is trying to refine you. He is trying to build character in you. He is trying to build endurance in you. He is trying to establish hope in you. He is trying to grow you and mold you and shape you more into the image of Jesus Christ. The one, listen, who suffered before he entered glory and established the very pattern for the Christian life. Jesus himself was a man of sorrows. This would be good comfort to your soul if you're going through trouble. Jesus, your Savior, was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He suffered great tribulation. He was killed by those who were supposed to embrace and worship him. And much of the tribulation that we are actually called to face in the Christian life is actually a result of our commitment to follow Jesus Christ. It's a part of our commitment to no longer be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That, that, that instantly, that, that verse that Paul began with in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that, that sets us against the world. It, it, it draws a line in the sand. It, it points us out as being different and distinct. We, by the very nature of our acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord, are telling the world that we are not of them that this world is not our home, that we're waiting for the promised land, a new heavens and a new earth. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is really an invitation to be like Jesus and therefore suffer like Jesus. You know, the world's hatred of Christians is simply the continuation of its quarrel with Jesus. Jesus would say these words, right? He says in John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In chapter 16 of John, he says this, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
in Acts chapter 14. Listen to the message that went out from the early church to the disciples, to the believers. The disciples were strengthening the souls of other disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Make sure you have the right expectations of what it means to follow Christ. It's not always that way. We've had it very easy for a very long time as followers of Christ. There are believers in other parts of the world who are facing immense tribulation and persecution for following Jesus. And we shouldn't be shocked, church. We shouldn't be shocked when it comes our way. We shouldn't flee from it. We shouldn't be scared of it. We should embrace it as the way. This is the way. By the way, the Mandalorians stole that from the Bible. You, I'm not kidding. That's, that's real. The, the New Testament, this is the way. This is the way. That's in the Bible. That's, that's the, the Christians were the people of the way. And you know what the way is? The way is suffering, then glory. The way is suffering, then glory. The way is suffering, then glory. We enter the kingdom through much tribulations. We follow Jesus. We trust in Jesus. And we will be rewarded by Jesus. But oftentimes, we try to escape our trials and tribulations We try to flee it. We try to run from it. We try to medicate ourselves in the midst of it. We run to things like alcohol or drugs, or we run to things like video games or Netflix binging or social media. We distract ourselves to death. We entertain ourselves to death. We often isolate ourselves in the midst of our trials to our own detriment and our own hurt. Far too often, we are eager to get out from under the trials instead of asking God what He wants us to get out of our trials. And I am not suggesting we shouldn't want trials to end. I'm not suggesting you run around looking for a fight and looking for trials. But far more important than that is our commitment to endure for God in the midst of trials. How are we to respond? Look at what he says. Look at, be patient. That doesn't mean to just wait, by the way. It's actually a compound word in in Greek. It means to remain under, to be long-suffering. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Again, the passage on love, passage being applied to the church community, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is so hard. But we need to see that our endurance is ultimately for God. We are being refined for Him. We are being made more useful, more fit for His service. We are bearing witness to Him and how we endure and how we are unwilling to compromise and capitulate when the pressure is on and our faith is at stake. We are giving glory to Him. And just as a side note, listen, it's not helpful to come alongside somebody who's in deep suffering and to simply tell them it's not that bad or it will get better. Can you hear this? Listen, can you hear this? Sometimes it is that bad and sometimes it will not be getting better. Sometimes we just need to be there to comfort and to pray and to love and to care and to show compassion and grace and mercy 
And yes, we need to preach truth into each other's hearts. We need to lovingly and gracefully apply the the gospel and point people to a greater hope to heal our weary souls. You know, I think of Job. Whenever I think of suffering, you can't help but think of Job, right? Job, here's this righteous man who, who Satan wants to attack him, and Satan accuses God and says, listen, the only reason he loves you, the only reason he, he follows you is because you've given him all these things. And so God gives Satan permission to test him, and, and, and he just says, you just can't kill him. So what does Satan do? He goes right for the jugular. He strips away all the man's wealth, and he had great wealth. He takes away his family. He kills all his kids. He brings a house down upon them, collapses the whole house. And then he, he puts this man in, in, on the ground in, in dust and ashes with boils and sores in immense physical pain. So he's in this emotional turmoil. He's in this psychological turmoil. He's in this physical turmoil, and he's in agony. And then his wife is still there, and she looks at him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? And he's like, oh, God, you you took away everything, and you left me with this? His friends show up and give him discouraging counsel. But I, I, I can't help but think, though, just listen, listen to these words in Job, in Job 23. Verse 8, this is so often how we feel in our trials, don't we? Listen, behold, I go forward, but he is not there and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Listen to this. This is so good. Listen. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Don't ever miss that God has a purpose in your trials that your tribulations and trials are not for nothing. Again, Milton Vincent in his Gospel Primer says this, the good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to His gospel purposes and to do good unto me by improving my character and making me conformed, more conformed to the image of Christ. That's so good. Listen, God often does His best work in our darkest hours. Isn't it interesting that as Jesus hung on the cross, it tells us, listen, that for three hours, darkness covered the earth. And theologians speculate about what was happening in that moment, but I think it's, it's somewhat clear. I think during those three hours of the day when darkness covered the earth, Jesus, in that darkness, was absorbing the very wrath of God for sin. In the darkest hour humanity has ever known, listen, 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 listen. God was doing His greatest work. It was through suffering that God did His saving work, and it is often through suffering that God does His sanctifying work. God doesn't always give us the explanations and the information that we, re- we desire, but He gives us the resources to endure. He gives us Himself, which is why, lastly, we need to see this. Love that last requires a constant engagement with God. Isn't it interesting that the place He goes, out of this patient endurance of tribulation, is straight into the throne room of grace? 
He tells us that the key to enduring and maintaining our hope is to be constantly in the presence of God, to be constantly speaking to God, to be constant in prayer. One commentator said this, when the church is in the midst of tribulation, Paul does not advise her to look for the rapture, nor does he tell us that tribulation will come to an end before Christ's return. Rather, he tells the church to seek the means of grace, fervent prayer. Corporate, constant, persistent prayer was a common theme in the early Christian teaching and practice. In the very beginning sections of the Bible, of of the, the birth, so to speak, of the church in the book of Acts, listen to what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. All these, those who were saved at the time, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and His brothers. The the leaders, the apostles of the church, when they were getting busy and overwhelmed, you want to know what they knew their their supreme task was? They, They said this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, 18, after he talks about the armor of God and being prepared for the battle that we're in, the spiritual fight for our lives and for advancing the kingdom of God, here's what he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In Colossians 4.2, Paul commands the church to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is a non-negotiable of the Christian life. This is a non-negotiable if you want to endure well and live well for the Lord. You must, you must be a man or a woman of prayer. We must be a church of prayer if we want to see the church strengthened and built up. Isn't it awesome when you read in the book of Acts, when the church gathered and prayed, when the church was faithfully calling upon God, when they were facing persecution and tribulation and trouble and Peter in prison, the people of God, they prayed, and God showed up in powerful ways. He shook houses. Angels flung open prison doors. This is what God does through a people who pray. He prepares them to endure. He helps them to endure and not just, not just make it through. Listen, this is the key. Not just kind of coast your way through, but to press on, to run the race set before us with faithfulness and perseverance, all for the glory and honor of the King who has saved us. And you know what we could do? We could spend a lot of time here talking about the importance of prayer, but you want to know what's better than talking about prayer? Yeah, we got one person who got it. Praying. Praying. And that's exactly what I want to just do right now as we end our, our time before we sing. I, I want to just, I, I, want to, I want to apply this to our lives. I want to, I want to prepare our hearts. I'm going to just lead us in a, in a brief time of prayer together. But before we do that, can I just, can I just ask you just to, to let your heart be encouraged for a moment by the Psalms. I was reading this this morning in my devotional time, and it, just, it was just so sweet for my own heart. Listen, listen to this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. 
He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is just how Jesus lived his life, isn't it? In his greatest trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sought his heavenly Father in prayer. Where do we run when we face tribulation? Where do we seek help and find our hope? Our hope, our help is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. How sad it is, right, that we have this unhindered access into the throne, of, throne room of grace. We, we, have, we have the very power of God ready to be unleashed on our behalf, but, but we just, we, we, we flee from it. We run to other things. You know, I, I mentioned this to the guys at the conference. You know, every one of us has, has if you've got an iPhone, you've got that, that app or that, 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 that access to see your, your screen time, right? You got that? Where you can pull it up and see how much time you've spent on your phone in different apps throughout the week. The one that we never like to look at because it's incredibly embarrassing. And again, like, I'm thinking about this because it's so important because we can look at that and we can say, man, look at all this time we spend on so many things. Look at, look at how we just, we're, ent- we're entertaining ourselves to death. We're so distracted. Some of this stuff's not sinful or bad or wrong, but, like, but if God was to allow you to see your God time, your prayer time, let me just ask you, how would that compare to where you spend the rest of your time? I think sadly for so many of us, it would be pitiful. And I'm not saying this to condemn. I'm saying this to encourage. Listen, we need to make some decisions as individuals. We need to make decisions as a church that enough is enough. No more of this stuff. I'm fasting from these things. I'm cutting them off. I'm limiting my time because you know what's better? Time with the Lord, seeking God's face, accessing his power, asking him to move powerfully in me and through me, allowing the gospel to go forth and advance his kingdom in his glory. That is better. 